My Terminal Moraine by Frank E. Stockton. Copyright 1892 by P. F. Collier. A man's birth is generally considered the most important event of his existence, but I truly think that what I am about to relate was more important to me than my entrance into this world, because, had not these things happened, I am of the opinion that my life would have been of no value to me and my birth a misfortune. My father, Joshua Cuthbert, died soon after I came to my majority, leaving me what he had considered a comfortable property. This consisted of a large house and some forty acres of land, nearly the whole of which lay upon a bluff, which upon three sides descended to a little valley, through which ran a gentle stream. I had no brothers or sisters. My mother died when I was a boy, and I, Walter Cuthbert, was left the sole representative of my immediate family. My estate had been a comfortable one to my father, because his income from the practice of his profession as a physician enabled him to keep it up and provide satisfactorily for himself and me. I had no profession and but a very small income, the result of a few investments my father had made. Left to myself, I felt no inducement to take up any profession or business. My wants were simple, and for a few years I lived without experiencing any inconvenience from the economies which I was obliged to practice. My books, my dog, my gun and my rod made life pass very pleasantly to me, and the subject of an increase of income never disturbed my mind. But as time passed on the paternal home began to present an air of neglect and even dilapidation, which occasionally attracted my attention and caused, as I incidentally discovered, a great deal of unfavorable comment among my neighbors, who thought that I should go to work and at least earn money enough to put the house and grounds in a condition which should not be unworthy the memory of the good Dr. Cuthbert. In fact, I began to be looked upon as a shiftless young man, and now and then, I found a person old enough and bold enough to tell me so. But instead of endeavoring to find some suitable occupation by which I might better my condition and improve my estate, I fell in love, which, in the opinion of my neighbors, was the very worst thing that could have happened to me at this time. I lived in a thrifty region, and for a man who could not support himself to think of taking upon him the support of a wife, especially such a wife as Agnes Hallot would be, was considered more than folly and looked upon as a crime. Everybody knew that I was in love with Miss Havlott, for I went to court her as boldly as I went to fish or shoot. There was a good deal of talk about it, and this finally came to the ears of Mr. Havlott, my lady's father, who, thereupon, promptly ordered her to have no more to do with me. The Havlott estate, which adjoined mine, was a very large one, containing hundreds and hundreds of acres, and the Havlots were rich, rich enough to frighten any poor young man of marrying intent. But I did not appreciate the fact that I was a poor young man. I had never troubled my head about money as it regarded myself, and I now did not trouble my head about it as it regarded Agnes. I loved her, I hoped she loved me, and all other considerations were thrown aside. Mr. Havlott, however, was a man of a different way of thinking. It was a little time before I became convinced that the decision of Agnes's father, that there should be no communication between that dear girl and myself, really meant anything. I had never been subjected to restrictions, and I did not understand how people of spirit could submit to them, but I was made to understand it when Mr. Havelot, finding me wandering about his grounds, very forcibly assured me that if I should make my appearance there again— or if he discovered any attempt on my part to communicate with his daughter in any way, 
he would send her from home. He concluded the very brief interview by stating that if I had any real regard for his daughter's happiness I would cease attentions which would meet with the most decided disapprobation from her only surviving parent, and which would result in exiling her from home. I begged for one more interview with Miss Havelot, and if it had been granted I should have assured her of the state of my affections. No matter if there were reasons to suppose that I would never see her again, but her father very sternly forbade anything of the kind and I went away crushed. It was a very hard case, for if I played the part of a bold lover and tried to see Agnes without regard to the wicked orders of her father, I should certainly be discovered, and then it would be not only myself, but the poor girl, who would suffer. So I determined that I would submit to the Havelot decree. No matter if I never saw her again, never heard the sound of her voice, it would be better to have her near me, to have her breathe the same air, cast up her eyes at the same sky listened to the same birds that I breathed, looked at and listened to, then to have her far away, probably in Kentucky, where I knew she had relatives, and where the grass was blue and the sky probably green, or at any rate would appear so to her if in the least degree she felt as I did in regard to the ties of home, and the affinities between the sexes. I now found myself in a most doleful and even desperate condition of mind. There was nothing in the world which I could have for which I cared hunting, fishing, and the rambles through woods and fields that had once been so delightful to me now became tasks which I seldom undertook. The only occupation in which I felt the slightest interest was that of sitting in a tower of my house with a telescope, endeavoring to see my Agnes on some portion of her father's grounds. But although I diligently directed my glass at the slightest stretch of lawn or bit of path which I could discern through openings in the foliage, I never caught sight of her. I knew, however, by means of daily questions addressed to my cook, whose daughter was a servant in the Halot house, that Agnes was yet at home. For that reason I remained at home. Otherwise I should have become a wanderer. About a month after I had fallen into this most unhappy state an old friend came to see me. We had been schoolfellows, but he differed from me in almost every respect. He was full of ambition and energy, and although he was but a few years older than myself— he had already made a name in the world. He was a geologist, earnest and enthusiastic in his studies and his investigations. He told me frankly that the object of his visit was twofold. In the first place, he wanted to see me, and secondly, he wanted to make some geological examinations on my grounds, which were situated, as he informed me, upon a terminal moraine, a formation which he had not yet had an opportunity of practically investigating. I had not known that I lived on a moraine, and now that I knew it, I did not care. But Tom Burton glowed with high spirits and lively zeal as he told me how the great bluff on which my house stood, together with the other hills and wooded terraces which stretched away from it along the side of the valley, had been formed by the minute fragments of rock and soil, which, during ages and ages, had been gradually pushed down from the mountains by a great glacier which once occupied the country to the northeast of my house. Why, Walter, my boy, he cried, if I had not read it all in the books I should have known for myself, as soon as I came here, that there had once been a glacier up there, and as it gradually moved to the southwest it had made this country what it is. Have you a stream down there in that dell which I see lies at right angles with the valley and opens into it? No, said I. I wish there were one. The only stream we have flows along the valley and not on my property. 
Without waiting for me, Tom ran down into my dell, pushed his way through the underbrush to its upper end, and before long came back flushed with heat and enthusiasm. Well, sir, he said, that dell was once the bed of a glacial stream, and you may as well clear it out and plant corn there if you want to, for there never will be another stream flowing through it until there is another glacier out in the country beyond. And now I want you to let me dig about here. I want to find out what sort of stuff the glacier brought down from the mountains. I will hire a man and will promise you to fill up all the holes I make. I had no objection to my friends digging as much as he pleased, and for three days he busied himself in getting samples of the soil of my estate. Sometimes I went out and looked at him, and gradually a little of his earnest ardor infused itself into me, and with some show of interest I looked into the holes he had made and glanced over the mineral specimens he showed me. Well, Walter, said he, when he took leave of me, I am very sorry that I did not discover that the glacier had raked out the bed of a gold mine from the mountains up there and brought it down to you, or at any rate, some valuable iron ore. But I am obliged to say it did not do anything of the sort. But I can tell you one thing it brought you, and although it is not of any great commercial value, I should think you could make good use of it here on your place. You have one of the finest deposits of gravel on this bluff that I have met with, and if you were to take out a lot of it and spread it over your driveways and paths, it would make it a great deal pleasanter for you to go about here in bad weather and would wonderfully improve your property. Good roads always give an idea of thrift and prosperity. And then he went away with a valise nearly full of mineral specimens which he assured me were very interesting. My interest in geological formations died away as soon as Tom Burton had departed but what he said about making gravel roads giving the place an air of thrift and prosperity had its effect upon my mind. It struck me that it would be a very good thing if people in the neighborhood, especially the Havlots, were to perceive on my place some evidences of thrift and prosperity. Most palpable evidences of unthrift and impecuniosity had cut me off from Agnes, and why might it not be that some signs of improved circumstances would remove, to a degree at least, the restrictions which had been placed between us. This was but a very little thing upon which to build hopes. But ever since men and women have loved they have built grand hopes upon very slight foundations. I determined to put my roadways in order. My efforts in this direction were really evidence of anything but thriftiness, for I could not in the least afford to make my drives and walks resemble the smooth and beautiful roads which wound over the Havlot estate, although to do this was my intention and I set about the work without loss of time. I took up this occupation with so much earnestness that it seriously interfered with my observations from the tower. I hired two men and set them to work to dig a gravel pit. They made excavations at several places, and very soon found what they declared to be a very fine quality of road gravel. I ordered them to dig on until they had taken out what they believed to be enough to cover all my roads. When this had been done, I would have it properly spread and rolled. As this promised to be a very good job, the men went to work in fine spirits and evidently made up their minds that the improvements I desired would require a vast deal of gravel. When they had dug a hole so deep that it became difficult to throw up the gravel from the bottom, I suggested that they should dig at some other place. But to this they objected, declaring that the gravel was getting better and better, and it would be well to go on down as long as the quality continued to be so good. So, at last, they put a ladder into the pit, one man carrying the gravel up in a hod, while the other dug it, 
and when they had gone down so deep that this was no longer practicable, they rigged up a derrick and windlass and drew up the gravel in a bucket. Had I been of a more practical turn of mind I might have perceived that this method of working made the job a very long and, consequently, to the laborers, a profitable one. But no such idea entered into my head, and not noticing whether they were bringing up sand or gravel I allowed them to proceed. One morning I went out to the spot where the excavation was being made and found that the men had built a fire on the ground near the opening of the pit, and that one of them was bending over it warming himself. As the month was July this naturally surprised me, and I inquired the reason for so strange a performance. Upon my soul, said the man, who was rubbing his hands over the blaze, I do not wonder you are surprised, but it's so cold down at the bottom of that pit that me fingers is almost frosted, and we haven't struck any wather either, which couldn't be expected, of course, a digging down into the hill like this. I looked into the hole and found it was very deep. I think it would be better to stop digging here, said I, and try some other place. I wouldn't do that just now, said the other man, who was preparing to go down in the bucket. To be sure, it's a good deal more like a well than a gravel pit, but it's bigger at the top than at the bottom, and there's no danger of its cavern in, and now that we've got everything rigged up all right, it would be a pity to make a change yet a while. So I let them go on but the next day when I went out again I found that they had come to the conclusion that it was time to give up digging in that hole. They both declared that it almost froze their feet to stand on the ground where they worked at the bottom of the excavation. The slow business of drawing up the gravel by means of a bucket and windlass was, therefore, reluctantly given up. The men now went to work to dig outward from this pit toward the edge of the bluff which overlooked my little dell, and gradually made a wide trench, which they deepened until and I am afraid to say how long they worked before this was done, they could walk to the original pit from the level of the dell. They then deepened the inner end of the trench, wheeling out the gravel and barrows, until they had made an inclined pathway from the dell to the bottom of the pit. The wheeling now became difficult, and the men soon declared that they were sure that they had quite gravel enough. When they made this announcement— and I had gone into some financial calculations, I found that I would be obliged to put an end to my operations, at least for the present, for my available funds were gone, or would be when I had paid what I owed for the work. The men were very much disappointed by the sudden ending of this good job, but they departed, and I was left to gaze upon a vast amount of gravel, of which, for the present at least, I could not afford to make the slightest use. The mental despondency which had been somewhat lightened during my excavating operations now returned, and I became rather more gloomy and downcast than before. My cook declared that it was of no use to prepare meals which I never ate, and suggested that it would save money if I discharged her. As I had not paid her anything for a long time, I did not see how this would benefit me. Wandering about one day with my hat pulled down over my eyes and my hands thrust deep into my pockets— I strolled into the dell and stood before the wide trench which led to the pit in which I had foolishly sunk the money which should have supported me for months. I entered this dismal passage and walked slowly and carefully down the incline until I reached the bottom of the original pit, where I had never been before. I stood here looking up and around me and wondering how men could bring themselves to dig down into such dreary depths simply for the sake of a few dollars a week, when I involuntarily began to stamp my feet. They were very cold, although I had not been there more than a minute. I wondered at this and took up some of the loose gravel in my hand. It was quite dry, 
but it chilled my fingers. I did not understand it, and I did not try to, but walked up the trench and around into the dell, thinking of Agnes. I was very fond of milk, which, indeed, was almost the only food I now cared for, and I was consequently much disappointed at my noonday meal when I found that the milk had soured and was not fit to drink. You see, sir, said Susan, ice is very scarce and dear, and we cannot afford to buy much of it. There was no freeze in weather last winter, and the price has gone up as high as the thermometer, sir, and so, between the two of them, I can't keep things from spoiling dot. The idea now came to me that if Susan would take the milk, and anything else she wished to keep cool in this hot weather, to the bottom of the gravel pit, she would find the temperature there cold enough to preserve them without ice, and I told her so. The next morning Susan came to me with a pleased countenance and said, I put the butter and the milk in that pit last night, and the butter's just as hard and the milk's as sweet as if it had been kept in an ice house. But the place is as cold as an ice house, sir, and unless I am mistaken, there's ice in it. Anyway, what do you call that? And she took from a little basket a piece of grayish ice as large as my fist. When I found it was so cold down there, sir, she said, I thought I would dig a little myself and see what made it so, and I took a fire shovel and hatchet, and when I had scraped away some of the gravel, I came to something hard and chopped off this piece of it, which is real ice, sir, or I know nothing about it. Perhaps there used to be an ice house there, and you might get some of it if you dug, though why anybody should put it down so deep and then cover it up, I'm sure I don't know. But as long as there's any there, I think we should get it out, even if there's only a little of it for I cannot take everything down to that pit, and we might as well have it in the refrigerator. This seemed to me like very good sense, and if I had had a man I should have ordered him to go down to the pit and dig up any lumps of ice he might find and bring them to the house. But I had no man, and I therefore became impressed with the opinion that if I did not want to drink sour milk for the rest of the summer, it might be a good thing for me to go down there and dig out some of the ice myself. So with pickaxe and shovel I went to the bottom of the pit and set myself to work. A few inches below the surface I found that my shovel struck something hard, and clearing away the gravel from this for two or three square feet, I looked down upon a solid mass of ice. It was dirty and begrimed, but it was truly ice. With my pick I detached some large pieces of it. These, with some discomfort, I carried out into the dell where Susan might come with her basket and get them. For several days Susan and I took out ice from the pit, and then I thought that perhaps Tom Burton might feel some interest in this frozen deposit in my terminal moraine, and so I wrote to him about it. He did not answer my letter, but instead arrived himself the next afternoon. Ice at the bottom of a gravel pit, said he, is a thing I never heard of. Will you lend me a spade and a pickaxe? When Tom came out of that pit, it was too cold a place for me to go with him and watch his proceedings, I saw him come running toward the house. Walter, he shouted, we must hire all the men we can find and dig, dig, dig. If I am not mistaken something has happened on your place that is wonderful almost beyond belief. But we must not stop to talk. We must dig, 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 dig all day and dig all night. Don't think of the cost. I'll attend to that. I'll get the money. What we must do is to find men and set them to work. What's the matter? said I. What has happened? I haven't time to talk about it now, 
Besides, I don't want to, for fear that I should find that I am mistaken. But get on your hat, my dear fellow, and let's go over to the town for men. The next day there were eight men working under the direction of my friend Burton, and although they did not work at night as he wished them to do, they labored steadfastly for ten days or more before Tom was ready to announce what it was he had hoped to discover, and whether or not he had found it. For a day or two I watched the workmen from time to time, but after that I kept away, preferring to await the result of my friend's operations. He evidently expected to find something worth having, and whether he was successful or not, it suited me better to know the truth all at once, and not by degrees. On the morning of the eleventh day Tom came into the room where I was reading and sat down near me. His face was pale, his eyes glittering. Old friend, said he, and as he spoke I noticed that his voice was a little husky, although it was plain enough that his emotion was not occasioned by bad fortune. My good old friend, I have found out what made the bottom of your gravel pit so uncomfortably cold. You need not doubt what I am going to tell you, for my excavations have been complete and thorough enough to make me sure of what I say. Don't you remember that I told you that ages ago there was a vast glacier in the country which stretches from here to the mountains? Well, sir, the foot of that glacier must have reached further this way than is generally supposed. At any rate a portion of it did extend in this direction as far as this bit of the world which is now yours. This end or spur of the glacier, nearly a quarter of a mile in width, I should say, and pushing before it a portion of the terminal moraine on which you live, came slowly toward the valley until suddenly it detached itself from the main glacier and disappeared from sight. That is to say, my boy, and as he spoke Tom sprang to his feet, too excited to sit any longer. It descended to the bowels of the earth, at least for a considerable distance in that direction. Now you want to know how this happened. Well, I'll tell you. In this part of the country there are scattered about here and there great caves. Geologists know one or two of them, and it is certain that there are others undiscovered. Well, sir, your glacier spur discovered one of them, and when it had lain over the top of it for an age or two, and had grown bigger and bigger, and heavier and heavier, it at last burst through the rock roof of the cave, snapping itself from the rest of the glacier and falling in one vast mass to the bottom of the subterranean abyss. Walter, it is there now. The rest of the glacier came steadily down. The moraines were forced before it. They covered up this glacier spur, this broken fragment, and by the time the climate changed and the average of temperature rose above that of the glacial period, this vast sunken mass of ice was packed away below the surface of the earth out of the reach of the action of friction, or heat, or moisture, or anything else which might destroy it. And through all the long procession of centuries that broken end of the glacier has been lying in your terminal moraine. It is there now. It is yours, Walter Cuthbert. It is an ice mine. It is wealth, and so far as I can make out, it is nearly all upon your land. To you is the possession, but to me is the glory of the discovery. A bit of the glacial period kept in a cave for us. It is too wonderful to believe. Walter, have you any brandy? It may well be supposed that by this time I was thoroughly awakened to the importance and the amazing character of my friend's discovery, and I hurried with him to the scene of operations. There he explained everything and showed me how, by digging away a portion of the face of the bluff, he had found that this vast fragment of the glacier, which had been so miraculously preserved, ended in an irregularly perpendicular wall, which extended downward he knew not how far, 
and the edge of it on its upper side had been touched by my workmen in digging their pit. It was the gradual melting of the upper end of this glacier, said Tom, probably more elevated than the lower end, that made your dell. I wondered why the depression did not extend further up toward the spot where the foot of the glacier was supposed to have been. This end of the fragment, being sunken deeper and afterward covered up more completely, probably never melted at all. It is amazing, astounding, said I. But what of it, now that we have found it? What of it? cried Tom, and his whole form trembled as he spoke. You have here a source of wealth, of opulence which shall endure for the rest of your days. Here at your very door, where it can be taken out and transported with the least possible trouble, is ice enough to supply the town, the county, yes, I might say, the state, for hundreds of years. No, sir, I cannot go into supper. I cannot eat. I leave to you the business and practical part of this affair. I go to report upon its scientific features. Agnes, exclaimed, as I walked to the house with my hands clasped and my eyes raised to the sky. The glacial period has given thee to me. This did not immediately follow, although I went that very night to Mr. Havelot and declared to him that I was now rich enough to marry his daughter. He laughed at me in a manner which was very annoying, and made certain remarks which indicated that he thought it probable that it was not the roof of the cave, but my mind, which had given way under the influence of undue pressure. The contemptuous manner in which I had been received aroused within me a very unusual state of mind. While talking to Mr. Havelot I heard not far away in some part of the house a voice singing. It was the voice of Agnes, and I believed she sang so that I could hear her. But as her sweet tones reached my ear there came to me at the same time the harsh, contemptuous words of her father. I left the house determined to crush that man to the earth beneath a superincumbent mass of ice, or the evidence of the results of the ownership of such a mass which would make him groan and weep as he apologized to me for his scornful and disrespectful utterances and at the same time offered me the hand of his daughter. When the discovery of the ice mine, as it grew to be called, became generally known, my grounds were crowded by sightseers, and reporters of newspapers were more plentiful than squirrels. But the latter were referred to Burton, who would gladly talk to them as long as they could afford to listen and I felt myself at last compelled to shut my gates to the first. I had offers of capital to develop this novel source of wealth, and I accepted enough of this assistance to enable me to begin operations on a moderate scale. It was considered wise not to uncover any portion of the glacier spur, but to construct an inclined shaft down to its wall-like end and from this tunnel into the great mass. Immediately the leading ice company of the neighboring town contracted with me for all the ice I could furnish and the floodgates of affluence began slowly to rise. The earliest, and certainly one of the greatest, benefits which came to me from this bequest from the unhistoric past was the new energy and vigor with which my mind and body were now infused. My old, careless method of life and my recent melancholy, despairing mood were gone, and I now began to employ myself upon the main object of my life with an energy and enthusiasm almost equal to that of my friend, Tom Burton. This present object of my life was to prepare my home for Agnes. The great piles of gravel which my men had dug from the well-like pit were spread upon the roadways and rolled smooth and hard. My lawn was mowed, my flower beds and borders put in order, useless bushes and undergrowth cut out and cleared away, 
My outbuildings were repaired and the grounds around my house rapidly assumed their old appearance of neatness and beauty. Ice was very scarce that summer, and, as the wagons wound away from the opening of the shaft which led down to the glacier, carrying their loads to the nearest railway station, so money came to me, not in large sums at first, for preparations had not yet been perfected for taking out the ice in great quantities, but enough to enable me to go on with my work as rapidly as I could plan it. I set about renovating and brightening and newly furnishing my house. Whatever I thought that Agnes would like I bought and put into it. I tried to put myself in her place as I selected the paper hangings and the materials with which to cover the furniture. Sometimes, while thus employed selecting ornaments or useful articles for my house, and using as far as was possible the taste and judgment of another instead of my own, the idea came to me that perhaps Agnes had never heard of my miraculous good fortune. Certainly her father would not be likely to inform her, and perhaps she still thought of me, if she thought at all, as the poor young man from whom she had been obliged to part because he was poor. But whether she knew that I was growing rich, or whether she thought I was becoming poorer and poorer, I thought only of the day when I could go to her father and tell him that I was able to take his daughter and place her in a home as beautiful as that in which she now lived, and maintain her with all the comforts and luxuries which he could give her. One day I asked my faithful cook, who also acted as my housekeeper and general supervisor, to assist me in making out a list of china which I intended to purchase. Are you thinking of buying china, sir? she asked. We have now quite as much as we really need. Oh, yes, said I. I shall get complete sets of everything that can be required for a properly furnished household. Susan gave a little sigh. You are spending a lot of money, sir and some of it for things that a single gentleman would be likely not to care very much about, and if you was to take it into your head to travel and stay away for a year or two, there's a good many things you've bought that would look shabby when you come back, no matter how careful I might be in dusting M and keeping M covered. But I have no idea of traveling, said I. There's no place so pleasant as this to me. Susan was silent for a few moments, and then she said, I know very well why you are doing all this and I feel it my bounden duty to say to you that there's a chance of its being no use. I do not speak without good reason, and I would not do it if I didn't think that it might make trouble lighter to you when it comes. What are you talking about, Susan? What do you mean? Well, sir, this is what I mean. It was only last night that my daughter Jane was in Mr. Havlett's dining room after dinner was over, and Mr. Havlott and a friend of his were sitting there, smoking their cigars and drinking their coffee. She went in and come out again as she was busy talking away the dishes, and they paid no attention to her, but went on talking without knowing, most likely, she was there. Mr. Havelot and the gentleman were talking about you, and Jane she heard Mr. Havelot say as plain as anything, and she said she couldn't be mistaken, that even if your nonsensical ice mine proved to be worth anything, he would never let his daughter marry an ice man. He spoke most disrespectful of ice men, sir and said that it would make him sick to have a son-in-law whose business it was to sell ice to butchers, and hotels, and grog shops, and pork packers, and all that sort of people, and that he would as soon have his daughter marry the man who supplied a hotel with sausages as the one who supplied it with ice to keep those sausages from spoiling. You see, sir, Mr. Havelot lives on his property as his father did before him, and he is a very proud man with a heart as hard and cold as that ice down under your land, 
and it's borne in on me very strong, sir, that it would be a bad thing for you to keep on thinking that you are getting this house all ready to bring Miss Havelock to when you have married her. For if Mr. Havelock keeps on living, which there's every chance of his doing, it may be many a weary year before you get Miss Agnes, if you ever get her. And having said that, sir, I say no more, and I would not have said this much if I hadn't felt it my bounden duty to your father's son to warn him that most likely he was working for what he might never get, and so keep him from breaking his heart when he found out the truth all of a sudden. With that Susan left me, without offering any assistance in making out a list of China. This was a terrible story, but after all, it was founded only upon servants' gossip. In this country even proud, rich men like Mr. Havelot did not have such absurd ideas regarding the source of wealth. Money is money, and whether it is derived from the ordinary products of the earth, from which came much of Mr. Havelot's revenue, or from an extraordinary project such as my glacier spur, it truly could not matter so far as concerned the standing in society of its possessor. What utter absurdity was this which Susan had told me? If I were to go to Mr. Havelot and tell him that I would not marry his daughter because he supplied brewers and bakers with the products of his fields, would he not consider me an idiot? I determined to pay no attention to the idle tale. But alas! Determinations of that sort are often of little avail. I did pay attention to it, and my spirits drooped. The tunnel into the glacier spur had now attained considerable length and the ice in the interior was found to be of a much finer quality than that first met with, which was of a grayish hue and somewhat inclined to crumble. When the workmen reached a grade of ice as good as they could expect, they began to enlarge the tunnel into a chamber, and from this they proposed to extend tunnels in various directions after the fashion of a coal mine. The ice was hauled out on sledges through the tunnel, and then carried up a wooden railway to the mouth of the shaft. It was comparatively easy to walk down the shaft and enter the tunnel, and when it happened that the men were not at work I allowed visitors to go down and view this wonderful ice cavern. The walls of the chamber appeared semi-transparent, and the light of the candles or lanterns gave the whole scene a weird and beautiful aspect. It was almost possible to imagine one's self surrounded by limpid waters, which might at any moment rush upon him and engulf him. Every day or two Tom Burton came with a party of scientific visitors, and had I chosen to stop the work of taking out ice, admitted the public and charged a price for admission, I might have made almost as much money as I at that time derived from the sale of the ice. But such a method of profit was repugnant to me. For several days after Susan's communication to me I worked on in my various operations, endeavoring to banish from my mind the idle nonsense she had spoken of but one of its effects upon me was to make me feel that I ought not to allow hopes so important to rest upon uncertainties. So I determined that as soon as my house and grounds should be in a condition with which I should for the time be satisfied, I would go boldly to Mr. Havelot, and casting out of my recollection everything that Susan had said, invite him to visit me and see for himself the results of the discovery of which he had spoken with such derisive contempt. This would be a straightforward and businesslike answer to his foolish objections to me, and I believed that in his heart the old gentleman would properly appreciate my action. About this time there came to my place Aaron Boyce, an elderly farmer of the neighborhood, and finding me outside, he seized the opportunity to have a chat with me. I tell you what it is, Mr. Cuthbert, said he. The people in this neighborhood hasn't give you credit for what's in you. The way you have fixed up this place— 
and the short time you have took to do it, is enough to show us now what sort of a man you are, and I tell you, sir, we're proud of you for a neighbor. I don't believe there's another gentleman in this county of your age that could have done what you have done in so short a time. I expect now you will be thinking of getting married and starting housekeeping in a regular fashion. That comes just as natural as to set hens in the spring. By the way, have you heard that old Mr. Havlet's thinking of going abroad? I didn't believe he would ever do that again, because he's getting pretty well on in years, but old men will do queer things as well as young ones. Going abroad? I cried. Does he intend to take his daughter with him? Mr. Aranboy smiled grimly. He was a great old gossip, and he had already obtained the information he wanted. Yes, he said. I've heard it was on her account he's going. She's been kind of weakly lately, they tell me, and hasn't took to her food, and the doctors has said that what she wants is a sea voyage and a change to foreign parts. Going abroad. Foreign parts. This was more terrible than anything I had imagined. I would go to Mr. Havelock that very evening, the only time which I would be certain to find him at home, and talk to him in a way which would be sure to bring him to his senses, if he had any. And if I should find that he had no sense of propriety or justice, no sense of his duty to his fellow man and to his offspring, then I would begin a bold fight for Agnes, a fight which I would not give up until, with her own lips, she told me that it would be useless. I would follow her to Kentucky, to Europe, to the uttermost ends of the earth. I could do it now. The frozen deposits in my terminal moraine would furnish me with the means. I walked away and left the old farmer standing grinning. No doubt my improvements and renovations had been the subject of gossip in the neighborhood, and he had come over to see if he could find out anything definite in regard to the object of them. He had succeeded, but he had done more. He had nerved me to instantly begin the conquest of Agnes, whether by diplomacy or war. I was so anxious to begin this conquest that I could scarcely wait for the evening to come. At the noon hour, when the iceworks were deserted, I walked down the shaft and into the ice chamber to see what had been done since my last visit. I decided to insist that operations upon a larger scale should be immediately begun, in order that I might have plenty of money with which to carry on my contemplated campaign. Whether it was one of peace or war, I should want all the money I could get. I took with me a lantern and went around the chamber, which was now twenty-five or thirty feet in diameter, examining the new inroads which had been made upon its walls. There was a tunnel commenced opposite the one by which the chamber was entered, but it had not been opened more than a dozen feet, and it seemed to me that the men had not been working with any very great energy. I wanted to see a continuous stream of ice blocks from that chamber to the mouth of the shaft. While grumbling thus I heard behind me a sudden noise like thunder and the crashing of walls, and turning quickly, I saw that a portion of the roof of the chamber had fallen in. Nor had it ceased to fall. As I gazed, several great masses of ice came down from above and piled themselves upon that which had already fallen. Startled and frightened, I sprang toward the opening of the entrance tunnel. But alas! I found that that was the point where the roof had given way, and between me and the outer world was a wall of solid ice through which it would be as impossible for me to break as if it were a barrier of rock. With the quick instinct which comes to men in danger I glanced about to see if the workmen had left their tools, but there were none. They had been taken outside. Then I stood and gazed stupidly at the mass of fallen ice, which, even as I looked upon it, 
was cracking and snapping, pressed down by the weight above it, and forming itself into an impervious barrier without crevice or open seam. Then I madly shouted. But of what avail were shouts down there in the depths of the earth? I soon ceased this useless expenditure of strength, and with my lantern in my hand, began to walk around the chamber, throwing the light upon the walls and the roof. I became impressed with the fear that the whole cavity might cave in at once and bury me here in a tomb of ice. But I saw no cracks, nor any sign of further disaster. But why think of anything more? Was not this enough? For, before that ice barrier could be cleared away, would I not freeze to death? I now continued to walk, not because I expected to find anything or do anything, but simply to keep myself warm by action. As long as I could move about I believed that there was no immediate danger of succumbing to the intense cold, for, when a young man, traveling in Switzerland, I had been in the cave of a glacier, and it was not cold enough to prevent some old women from sitting there to play the zither for the sake of a few coppers from visitors. I could not expect to be able to continue walking until I should be rescued, and if I sat down, or by chance slept from exhaustion, I must perish. The more I thought of it, the more sure I became that in any case I must perish, a man in a block of ice could have no chance of life. And Agnes! Oh, heavens! What demon of the ice had leagued with old Havlat to shut me up in this frozen prison? For a long time I continued to walk, beat my body with my arms and stamp my feet. The instinct of life was strong within me. I would live as long as I could, and think of Agnes. When I should be frozen I could not think of her. Sometimes I stopped and listened. I was sure I could hear noises, but I could not tell whether they were above me or not. In the center of the ice barrier, about four feet from the ground, was a vast block of the frozen substance which was unusually clear and seemed to have nothing on the other side of it, for through it I could see flickers of light, as though people were going about with lanterns. It was quite certain that the accident had been discovered, for— had not the thundering noise been heard by persons outside, the workmen would have seen what had happened as soon as they came into the tunnel to begin their afternoon operations. At first I wondered why they did not set to work with a will and cut away this barrier and let me out. But there suddenly came to my mind a reason for this lack of energy which was more chilling than the glistening walls around me. Why should they suppose that I was in the ice chamber? I was not in the habit of coming here very often— but I was in the habit of wandering off by myself at all hours of the day. This thought made me feel that I might as well lie down on the floor of this awful cave and die at once. The workmen might think it unsafe to mine any further in this part of the glacier, and begin operations at some other point. I did sit down for a moment, and then I rose involuntarily and began my weary round. Suddenly I thought of looking at my watch. It was nearly five o'clock. I had been more than four hours in that dreadful place, and I did not believe that I could continue to exercise my limbs very much longer. The lights I had seen had ceased. It was quite plain that the workmen had no idea that anyone was imprisoned in the cave. But soon after I had come to this conclusion I saw through the clear block of ice a speck of light, and it became stronger and stronger, until I believed it to be close to the other side of the block. There it remained stationary but there seemed to be other points of light which moved about in a strange way, and near it. Now I stood by the block watching. When my feet became very cold I stamped them, but there I stood fascinated, for what I saw was truly surprising. 
a large coal of fire appeared on the other side of the block, then it suddenly vanished and was succeeded by another coal. This disappeared, and another took its place, each one seeming to come nearer and nearer to me. Again and again did these coals appear. They reached the center of the block. They approached my side of it. At last one was so near to me that I thought it was about to break through, but it vanished. Then there came a few quick thuds and the end of a piece of iron protruded from the block. This was withdrawn, and through the aperture there came a voice which said, Mr. Cuthbert, are you in there? It was the voice of Agnes. Weak and cold as I was, fire and energy rushed through me at these words. Yes, I exclaimed, my mouth to the hole. Agnes, is that you? Wait a minute, came from the other side of the aperture. I must make it bigger. I must keep it from closing up. Again came the coals of fire, running backward and forward through the long hole in the block of ice. I could see now what they were. They were irons used by plumbers for melting solder and that sort of thing, and Agnes was probably heating them in a little furnace outside and withdrawing them as fast as they cooled. It was not long before the aperture was very much enlarged, and then there came grating through it a long tin tube nearly two inches in diameter, which almost, but not quite, reached my side of the block. Now came again the voice of Agnes. Oh, Mr. Cuthbert, are you truly there? Are you crushed? Are you wounded? Are you nearly frozen? Are you starved? Tell me quickly if you are yet safe. Had I stood in a palace padded with the softest silk and filled with spicy odors from a thousand rose gardens, I could not have been better satisfied with my surroundings than I was at that moment. Agnes was not two feet away. She was telling me that she cared for me. In a very few words I assured her that I was uninjured. Then I was on the point of telling her I loved her, for I believed that not a moment should be lost in making this avowal. I could not die without her knowing that but the appearance of a mass of paper at the other end of the tube prevented the expression of my sentiments. This was slowly pushed on until I could reach it. Then there came the words, Mr. Cuthbert, these are sandwiches. Eat them immediately and walk about while you are doing it. You must keep yourself warm until the men get to you. Obedient to the slightest wish of this dear creature, I went twice around the cave, devouring the sandwiches as I walked. They were the most delicious food that I had ever tasted. They were given to me by Agnes. I came back to the opening. I could not immediately begin my avowal. I must ask a question first. Can they get to me? I inquired. Is anybody trying to do that? Are they working there by you? I do not hear them at all. Oh, no, she answered. They are not working here. They are on top of the bluff, trying to dig down to you. They were afraid to meddle with the ice here for fear that more of it might come down and crush you and the men, too. Oh, there has been a dreadful excitement since it was found that you were in there. How could they know I was here? I asked. It was your old Susan who first thought of it. She saw you walking toward the shaft about noon, and then she remembered that she had not seen you again. And when they came into the tunnel here they found one of the lanterns gone and the big stick you generally carry lying where the lantern had been. Then it was known that you must be inside. Oh, then there was an awful time. The foreman of the ice men examined everything and said they must dig down to you from above. He put his men to work, but they could do very little, for they had hardly any spades. 
Then they sent into town for help and over to the new park for the Italians working there. From the way these men set to work you might have thought that they would dig away the whole bluff in about five minutes, but they didn't. Nobody seemed to know what to do, or how to get to work, and the hole they made when they did begin was filled up with men almost as fast as they even threw out the stones and gravel. I don't believe anything would have been done properly if your friend, Mr. Burton, hadn't happened to come with two scientific gentlemen, and since that he has been directing everything. You can't think what a splendid fellow he is. I fairly adored him when I saw him giving his orders and making everybody skip around in the right way. Tom is a very good man, said I, but it is his business to direct that sort of work, and it is not surprising that he knows how to do it. But, Agnes, they may never get down to me, and we do not know that this roof may not cave in upon me at any moment, and before this or anything else happens I want to tell you. Mr. Cuthbert, said Agnes, is there plenty of oil in your lantern? It would be dreadful if it were to go out and leave you there in the dark. I thought of that and brought you a little bottle of kerosene so that you can fill it. I am going to push the bottle through now, if you please. And with this a large file, cork and foremost, came slowly through the tube, propelled by one of the soldering irons. Then came Agnes's voice. Please fill your lantern immediately, because if it goes out you cannot find it in the dark, and then walk several times around the cave, for you have been standing still too long already. I obeyed these injunctions but in two or three minutes was again at the end of the tube. Agnes, said I, how did you happen to come here? Did you contrive in your own mind this method of communicating with me? Oh, yes, I did, she said. Everybody said that this mass of ice must not be meddled with, but I knew very well it would not hurt it to make a hole through it. But how did you happen to be here? I asked. Oh, I ran over as soon as I heard of the accident. Everybody ran here. The whole neighborhood is on top of the bluff, but nobody wanted to come into the tunnel, because they were afraid that more of it might fall in. So I was able to work here all by myself, and I am very glad of it. I saw the soldering iron and the little furnace outside of your house where the plumbers had been using them, and I brought them here myself. Then I thought that a simple hole through the ice might soon freeze up again, and if you were alive inside I could not do anything to help you. And so I ran home and got my diploma case that had had one end melted out of it, and I brought that to stick in the hole. I'm so glad that it is long enough, or almost. Oh, Agnes, I cried. You thought of all this for me? Why, of course, Mr. Cuthbert, she answered before I had a chance to say anything more. You were in great danger of perishing before the men got to you, and nobody seemed to think of any way to give you immediate relief. And don't you think that a collegiate education is a good thing for girls, at least that it was for me? Agnes, I exclaimed, please let me speak. I want to tell you, I must tell you. But the voice of Agnes was clearer than mine, and it overpowered my words. Mr. Cuthbert, she said, we cannot both speak through this tube at the same time in opposite directions. I have here a bottle of water for you but I am very much afraid it will not go through the diploma case. Oh, I don't want any water, I said. I can eat ice if I am thirsty. What I want is to tell you dash. Mr. Cuthbert, said she, you must not eat that ice. Water that was frozen countless ages ago may be very different from the water of modern times, and might not agree with you.
Don't touch it, please. I am going to push the bottle through if I can. I tried to think of everything that you might need and brought them all at once, because if I could not keep the hole open, I wanted to get them to you without losing a minute. Now the bottle came slowly through. It was a small beer bottle, I think, and several times I was afraid it was going to stick fast and cut off communication between me and the outer world, that is to say, between me and Agnes. But at last the cork and the neck appeared, and I pulled it through. I did not drink any of it, but immediately applied my mouth to the tube. Agnes, I said, my dear Agnes, really you must not prevent me from speaking. I cannot delay another minute. This is an awful position for me to be in, and as you don't seem to realize. But I do realize, Mr. Cuthbert, that if you don't walk about you will certainly freeze before you can be rescued. Between every two or three words you want to take at least one turn around that place. How dreadful it would be if you were suddenly to become benumbed and stiff. Everybody is thinking of that. The best diggers that Mr. Burton had were three colored men but after they had gone down nothing like as deep as a well, they came up frightened and said they would not dig another shovelful for the whole world. Perhaps you don't know it, but there's a story about the neighborhood that the Negro hell is under your property. You know many of the colored people expect to be everlastingly punished with ice and not with fire. Agnes, I interrupted. I am punished with ice and fire both. Please let me tell you. I was going on to say, Mr. Cuthbert, she interrupted, that when the Italians heard why the colored men had come out of the hole they would not go in either, for they are just as afraid of everlasting ice as the Negroes are, and were sure that if the bottom came out of that hole they would fall into a frozen lower world. So there was nothing to do but to send for paupers, and they are working now. You know paupers have to do what they are told without regard to their beliefs. They got a dozen of them from the poorhouse. Somebody said they just threw them into the hole. Now I must stop talking, for it is time for you to walk around again. Would you like another sandwich? Agnes, said I, endeavoring to speak calmly. All I want is to be able to tell you. And when you walk, Mr. Cuthbert, you had better keep around the edge of the chamber, for there is no knowing when they may come through. Mr. Burton and the foreman of the icemen measured the bluff so that they say the hole they are making is exactly over the middle of the chamber you are in and if you walk around the edge the pieces may not fall on you. If you don't listen to me, Agnes, I said, I'll go and sit anywhere, everywhere, where death may come to me quickest. Your coldness is worse than the coldness of the cave. I cannot bear it. But, Mr. Cuthbert, said Agnes, speaking, I thought, with some agitation, I have been listening to you, and what more can you possibly have to say? If there is anything you want, let me know. I will run and get it for you. There is no need that you should go away to get what I want. I said. It is there with you. It is you. Mr. Cuthbert, said Agnes, in a very low voice, but so distinctly that I could hear every word. Don't you think it would be better for you to give your whole mind to keeping yourself warm and strong? For if you let yourself get benumbed you may sink down and freeze. Agnes, I said. I will not move from this little hole until I have told you that I love you, that I have no reason to care for life or rescue unless you return my love, unless you are willing to be mine. Speak quickly to me, Agnes, because I may not be rescued and may never know whether my love for you is returned or not. At this moment there was a tremendous crash behind me, 
and turning, I saw a mass of broken ice upon the floor of the cave, with a cloud of dust and smaller fragments still falling. And then with a great scratching and scraping, and a howl loud enough to waken the echoes of all the lower regions, down came a red-headed, drunken shoemaker. I cannot say that he was drunk at that moment, but I knew the man the moment I saw his carroty pole, and it was drink which had sent him to the poor house. But the sprawling and howling cobbler did not reach the floor. A rope had been fastened around his waist to prevent a fall in case the bottom of the pit should suddenly give way, and he hung dangling in mid-air with white face and distended eyes, cursing and swearing and vociferously entreating to be pulled up. But before he received any answer from above, or I could speak to him, there came through the hole in the roof of the cave a shower of stones and gravel, and with them a frantic Italian, his legs and arms outspread, his face wild with terror. Just as he appeared in view he grasped the rope of the cobbler, and though in a moment he came down heavily upon the floor of the chamber, this broke his fall, and he did not appear to be hurt. Instantly he crouched low and almost upon all fours, and began to run around the chamber, keeping close to the walls and screaming, I suppose to his saints, to preserve him from the torments of the frozen damned. In the midst of this hubbub came the voice of Agnes through the hole. Oh, Mr. Cuthbert, what has happened? Are you alive? I was so disappointed by the appearance of these wretched interlopers at the moment it was about to be decided whether my life, should it last for years, or but for a few minutes, was to be black or bright, and I was so shaken and startled by the manner of their entry upon the scene, that I could not immediately shape the words necessary to inform Agnes what had happened. But collecting my faculties, I was about to speak, when suddenly, with the force of the hind leg of a mule, I was pushed away from the aperture, and the demoniac Italian clapped his great mouth to the end of the tube and roared through it a volume of oaths and supplications. I attempted to thrust aside the wretched being, but I might as well have tried to move the ice barrier itself. He had perceived that someone outside was talking to me, and in his frenzy he was imploring that someone should let him out. While still endeavoring to move the man, I was seized by the arm, and turning, beheld the pallid face of the shoemaker. They had let him down so that he reached the floor. He tried to fall on his knees before me, but the rope was so short that he was able to go only part of the way down, and presented a most ludicrous appearance, with his toes scraping the icy floor and his arms thrown out as if he were paddling like a tadpole. Oh, have mercy upon me, sir, he said, and help me get out of this dreadful place. If you go to the hole and call up it's you, they will pull me up. But if they get you out first, they will never think of me. I am a poor pauper, sir, but I never did nothing to be packed in ice before I am dead. Noticing that the Italian had left the end of the aperture in the block of ice, and that he was now shouting up the open shaft, I ran to the channel of communication which my Agnes had opened for me, and called through it. But the dear girl had gone. The end of a ladder now appeared at the opening in the roof, and this was let down until it reached the floor. I started toward it, but before I had gone half the distance the frightened shoemaker and the maniac Italian sprang upon it, and with shrieks and oaths began a maddening fight for possession of the ladder. They might quickly have gone up one after the other, but each had no thought but to be first, and as one seized the rounds he was pulled away by the other, until I feared the ladder would be torn to pieces. The shoemaker finally pushed his way up a little distance, when the Italian sprang upon his back, endeavoring to climb over him, and so on they went up the shaft, 
fighting, swearing, kicking, scratching, shaking and wrenching the ladder, which had been tied to another one in order to increase its length, so that it was in danger of breaking, and tearing at each other in a fashion which made it wonderful that they did not both tumble headlong downward. They went on up, so completely filling the shaft with their struggling forms and their wild cries that I could not see or hear anything, and was afraid, in fact, to look up toward the outer air. As I was afterward informed, the Italian, who had slipped into the hole by accident, ran away like a frightened hare the moment he got his feet on firm ground, and the shoemaker sat down and swooned. By this performance he obtained from a benevolent bystander a drink of whiskey, the first he had had since he was committed to the poorhouse. But a voice soon came down the shaft calling to me. I recognized it as that of Tom Burton, and replied that I was safe, and that I was coming up the ladder. But in my attempt to climb, I found that I was unable to do so. Chilled and stiffened by the cold and weakened by fatigue and excitement, I believe I never should have been able to leave that ice chamber if my faithful friend had not come down the ladder and vigorously assisted me to reach the outer air. Seated on the ground, my back against a great oak tree, I was quickly surrounded by a crowd of my neighbors, the workmen and the people who had been drawn to the spot by the news of the strange accident, to gaze at me as if I were some unknown being excavated from the bowels of the earth. I was sipping some brandy and water which Burton had handed me, when Aaron Boyce pushed himself in front of me. Well, sir, he said, I am mighty glad you got out of that scrape. I'm bound to say I didn't expect you would. I have been sure all along that it wasn't right to meddle with things that go egg in nature, and I haven't any doubt that you'll see that for yourself and fill up all them tunnels and shafts you've made. The ice that comes on ponds and rivers was good enough for our forefathers, and it ought to be good enough for us. And as for this cold stuff you find in your gravel pit, I don't believe it's ice at all, and if it is, like as not it's made of some sort of pies and stuff that freezes easier than water. For everybody knows that water don't freeze in a well, and if it don't do that, why should it do it in any kind of a hole in the ground? So perhaps it's just as well that you did get shut up there, sir, and find out for yourself what a dangerous thing it is to fool with nature and try to get ice from the bottom of the ground instead of the top of the water. This speech made me angry, for I knew that old Boyce was a man who was always glad to get hold of anything which had gone wrong and try to make it worse but I was too weak to answer him. This, however, would not have been necessary, for Tom Burton turned upon him. Idiot, said he, if that is your way of thinking you might as well say that if a well caves and you should never again dig for water, or that nobody should have a cellar under his house for fear that the house should fall into it. There's no more danger of the ice beneath us ever giving way again than there is that this bluff should crumble under our feet. That break in the roof of the ice tunnel was caused by my digging away the face of the bluff very near that spot. The high temperature of the outer air weakened the ice, and it fell. But down here, under this ground and secure from the influences of the heat of the outer air, the mass of ice is more solid than rock. We will build a brick arch over the place where the accident happened, and then there will not be a safer mine on this continent than this ice mine will be. This was a wise and diplomatic speech from Burton and it proved to be of great service to me, for the men who had been taking out ice had been a good deal frightened by the fall of the tunnel, and when it was proved that what Burton had said in regard to the cause of the weakening of the ice was entirely correct, they became willing to go to work again. I now began to feel stronger and better, and rising to my feet, I glanced here and there into the crowd, 
hoping to catch a sight of Agnes, but I was not very much surprised at not seeing her, because she would naturally shrink from forcing herself into the midst of this motley company. But I felt that I must go and look for her without the loss of a minute, for if she should return to her father's house I might not be able to see her again. On the outskirts of the crowd I met Susan, who was almost overpowered with joy at seeing me safe again. I shook her by the hand, but without replying to her warm-hearted protestations of thankfulness and delight, I asked her if she had seen Miss Havelock. Miss Agnes! she exclaimed. Why, no, sir. I expect she's at home, and if she did come here with the rest of the neighbors I didn't see her, for when I found out what had happened, sir, I was so weak that I sat down in the kitchen all of a lump, and have just had strength enough to come out. Oh, I know she was here. I cried. I am sure of that, and I do hope she's not gone home again. No, she was here, exclaimed Susan. Why, how on earth could you know that? I did not reply that it was not on the earth but under it, that I became aware of the fact, but hurried toward the Havelot house, hoping to overtake Agnes if she had gone that way. But I did not see her, and suddenly a startling idea struck me, and I turned and ran home as fast as I could go. When I reached my grounds I went directly to the mouth of the shaft. There was nobody there, for the crowd was collected into a solid mass on the top of the bluff, listening to a lecture from Tom Burton, who deemed it well to promote the growth of interest and healthy opinion in regard to his wonderful discovery and my valuable possession. I hurried down the shaft, and near the end of it, just before it joined the ice tunnel, I beheld Agnes sitting upon the wooden track. She was not unconscious for as I approached she slightly turned her head. I sprang toward her, I kneeled beside her, I took her in my arms. Oh, Agnes, dearest Agnes, I cried. What is the matter? What has happened to you? Has a piece of ice fallen upon you? Have you slipped and hurt yourself? She turned her beautiful eyes up toward me and for a moment did not speak. Then she said, And they got you out? And you are in your right mind? Right mind! I exclaimed. I have never been out of my mind. What are you thinking of? Oh, you must have been, she said, when you screamed at me in that horrible way. I was so frightened that I fell back, and I must have fainted. Tremulous as I was with love and anxiety, I could not help laughing. Oh, my dear Agnes, I did not scream at you. That was a crazed Italian who fell through the hole that they dug. Then I told her what had happened. She heaved a gentle sigh. I am so glad to hear that, she said. There was one thing that I was thinking about just before you came and which gave me a little bit of comfort. The words and yells I heard were dreadfully oniony, and somehow or other I could not connect that sort of thing with you. It now struck me that during this conversation I had been holding my dear girl in my arms, and she had not shown the slightest sign of resistance or disapprobation. This made my heart beat high. Oh, Agnes, I said, I truly believe you love me or you would not have been here. You would not have done for me all that you did. Why did you not answer me when I spoke to you through that wall of ice, through the hole your dear love had made in it? Why, when I was in such a terrible situation, not knowing whether I was to die or live, did you not comfort my heart with one sweet word? Oh, Walter, she answered. It wasn't at all necessary for you to say all that you did say, for I had suspected it before, and as soon as you began to call me Agnes I knew, of course, how you felt about it. 
and besides it really was necessary that you should move about to keep yourself from freezing. But the great reason for my not encouraging you to go on talking in that way was that I was afraid people might come into the tunnel, and as of course you would not know that they were there, you would go on making love to me through my diploma case, and you know I should have perished with shame if I had had to stand there with that old Mr. Boyce, and I don't know who else, listening to your words, which were very sweet to me, Walter, but which would have sounded awfully funny to them. When she said that my words had been sweet to her I dropped the consideration of all other subjects. When, about ten minutes afterward, we came out of the shaft we were met by Susan. Bless my soul and body, Mr. Cuthbert! she exclaimed. Did you find that young lady down there in the center of the earth? It seems to me as if everything that you want comes to you out of the ground. But I have been looking for you to tell you that Mr. Havelot has been here after his daughter and I'm sure if he had known where she was, he would have been scared out of his wits. Father here, exclaimed Agnes. Where is he now? I think he has gone home, miss. Indeed I'm sure of it, for my daughter Jenny, who was over here the same as all the other people in the county, I truly believe told him, and I was proud she had the spirit to speak up that way to him, that your heart was almost broke when you heard about Mr. Cuthbert being shut up in the ice and that most likely you was in your own room a crying your eyes out. When he heard that he stood looking all around the place, and he asked me if he might go in the house, and when I told him he was most welcome, he went in. I offered to show him about, which he said was no use, that he had been there often enough, and he went everywhere, I truly believe, except in the garret and the cellar. And after he got through with that he went out to the barn and then walked home. I must go to him immediately said Agnes. But not alone, said I, and together we walked through the woods, over the little field and across the Havelot lawn to the house. We were told that the old gentleman was in his library, and together we entered the room. Mr. Havelot was sitting by a table on which were lying several open volumes of an encyclopedia. When he turned and saw us, he closed his book, pushed back his chair and took off his spectacles. Upon my word, sir, he cried. And so the first thing you do after they pull you out of the earth is to come here and break my commands. I came on the invitation of your daughter, sir. And what right has she to invite you, I'd like to know. She has every right, for to her I owe my existence. What rabid nonsense! exclaimed the old gentleman. People don't owe their existence to the silly creatures they fall in love with. I assure you I am correct, sir. And then I related to him what his daughter had done and how through her angelic agency my rescuers had found me a living being instead of a frozen corpse. Stuff, said Mr. Havelot. People can live in a temperature of 32 degrees above zero all winter. Out in Minnesota they think that's hot. And you gave him vittles and drink through your diploma case. Well, miss, I told you that if you tried to roast chestnuts in that diploma case the bottom would come out. But you see, father, said Agnes earnestly, The reason I did that was because when I roasted them in anything shallow they popped into the fire, but they could not jump out of the diploma case. Well, something else seems to have jumped out of it, said the old gentleman, and something with which I am not satisfied. I have been looking over these books, sir, and have read the articles on ice, glaciers and caves, 
and I find no record of anything in the whole history of the world which in the least resembles the cock and bull story I am told about the but end of a glacier which tumbled into a cave in your ground, and has been lying there through all the geological ages, and the eras of formation, and periods of animate existence down to the days of Noah, and Moses, and Methuselah, and Ramesses too, and Alexander the Great, and Martin Luther, and John Wesley, to this day, for you to dig out and sell to the Williamstown Ice Company. But that's what happened, sir, said I. And besides, father, added Agnes, the gold and silver that people take out of mines may have been in the ground as long as that ice has been. Bosh, said Mr. Havelot. The cases are not at all similar. It is simply impossible that a piece of a glacier should have fallen into a cave and been preserved in that way. The temperature of caves is always above the freezing point, and that ice would have melted a million years before you were born. But, father, said Agnes, the temperature of caves filled with ice must be very much lower than that of common caves. And apart from that, I added, the ice is still there, sir. That doesn't make the slightest difference, he replied. It's against all reason and common sense that such a thing could have happened. Even if there ever was a glacier in this part of the country, and if the lower portion of it did stick out over an immense hole in the ground, that protruding end would never have broken off and tumbled in. Glaciers are too thick and massive for that. But the glacier is there, sir, said I, in spite of your own reasoning. And then again, continued the old gentleman, if there had been a cave and a projecting spur the ice would have gradually melted and dripped into the cave and we would have had a lake and not an ice mine. It is an absurdity. But it's there, notwithstanding, said I. And you cannot subvert facts, you know, father, added Agnes. Confound facts, he cried. I base my arguments on sober, cool-headed reason, and there's nothing that can withstand reason. The thing's impossible, and therefore, it has never happened. I went over to your place, sir, when I heard of the accident, for the misfortunes of my neighbors interest me, no matter what may be my opinion of them, and when I found that you had been extricated from your ridiculous predicament, I went through your house, and I was pleased to find it in as good or better condition than I had known it in the days of your respected father. I was glad to see the improvement in your circumstances, but when I am told, sir, that your apparent prosperity rests upon such an absurdity as a glacier in a gravel hill, I can but smile with contempt, sir. I was getting a little tired of this. But the glacier is there, sir, I said, and I am taking out ice every day, and have reason to believe that I can continue to take it out for the rest of my life. With such facts as these before me, I am bound to say, sir, that I don't care in the least about reason. And I am here, father, said Agnes, coming close to me, and here I want to continue for the rest of my days. The old gentleman looked at her. And I suppose, he said, that you, too, don't in the least care about reason? Not a bit, said Agnes. Well, said Mr. Havelot, rising, I have done all I can to make you two listen to reason, and I can do no more. I despair of making sensible human beings of you, and so you might as well go on acting like a couple of ninny hammers. Do ninny hammers marry and settle on the property adjoining yours, sir? I asked. Yes, I suppose they do, he said and when the aboriginal ice-house, or whatever the ridiculous thing is that they have discovered, gives out, 
I suppose that they can come to a reasonable man and ask him for a little money to buy bread and butter. Two years have passed, and Agnes and the glacier are still mine. Great blocks of ice now flow in almost a continuous stream from the mine to the railroad station, and in a smaller but quite as continuous stream an income flows in upon Agnes and me, and from one of the experimental excavations made by Tom Burton on the bluff comes a stream of ice-cold water running in a sparkling brook aid on my dell. On fine mornings before I am up, I am credibly informed that errand boys may generally be found, in season and out of season, endeavoring to catch the trout with which I am trying to stock that ice-cold stream. The diploma case, which I caused to be carefully removed from the ice barrier which had imprisoned me, now hangs in my study and holds our marriage certificate. Near the line fence which separates his property from mine, Mr. Havlot has sunk a wide shaft. If the glacier spur under your land was a quarter of a mile wide, he says to me, it was probably at least a half a mile long, and if that were the case, the upper end of it extends into my place, and I may be able to strike it. He has a good deal of money, this worthy Mr. Havelock, but he would be very glad to increase his riches, whether they are based upon sound reason or ridiculous facts. As for Agnes and myself, no facts or any reason could make us happier than our ardent love and our frigid fortune. 